Our sermon text this morning is from John 7, 19 to 36. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This is the word of the Lord. John chapter 7, John chapter 7. If you haven't turned there yet. While you're turning there, let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, your prophet has written, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. God, we, we come to your word and we ask that you would teach us. Not for the sake of learning just by itself, but so that we could walk in your path and we would be closer to you, that we would know you more, that we would honor you more, that we would love you more, God. Work that in our hearts in this time. Even if we don't want it, God, if our hearts are standing in rebellion against you, open rebellion against you. 
tear down those walls and work your truth into our hearts so that we may walk in the path of your Son. Amen. Amen. The human mind is an interesting thing. If you're anything like me, chances are your, your whole childhood is encapsulated into probably 15, 20, maybe 30 different memories. It's kind of all you remember. All of those years and everything that happened, it's not because there was great trauma or anything. It was just, I don't remember much. But one of the memories that I do have is that I was with my buddies across the street at the farm, and they were playing there and having a great time. And then my dad comes, and he's going to go. And of course, he's my dad, so where else is he going to go? He's going to go to Fleet Farm. And so then there's this great dilemma. Do you go with dad or not? Do you stay and have fun, or do you go with him? Because you also know dad's going to Fleet Farm, but you also know it's not cool anymore. But dad would stop and get a pack of smokes on the way. So chances are you could get some candy and throw it up on the counter and maybe get a candy or pop if you go with him. But I opted, I opted to stay. Work in the shop, have a good time. All my buddies, my brother, they go with my dad. And soon I begin to realize how foolish I was. That I would opt to stay with one of my neighbors and work in the shop and not go and be with my dad, who asked me to come with him. So it wasn't long. I left. And I begin running after them. And I see his blue truck driving down the road. And I vividly remember running after them with my short little Jake legs as fast as I could. But I knew it wasn't enough to catch him. But I began hoping and begging that my legs could take me to him. Or that they would see me. Or that they would go, let's just turn around and go back. But it was to no avail. I stood there and just watched my dad's truck fade into the distance. I was the type of the kid who never cried. When you do a lot of stupid things, you just you learn that you can't cry because nobody cares after a while. So I never cried, but I remember standing there all alone and just beginning to weep. broke down. I was by myself and I had sought after my own father. But I knew he was gone. I knew it was too late. Same thing we have in our text here this morning. Christ is warning these people to, that they better seek after him because there will come a time when it's going to be too late to come and seek after the father. So how are we going to see this in the text? First thing you're going to see is that you must judge properly. Verses 19 through 24. If you're going to seek after Christ, you must understand who he is. Take him at his own word. Don't create up these straw men so that you can dismiss him. We talked about this some last week. Verses 19 through 24. You must judge properly. And then verses 25 through 31, you see this great divide amongst the people of, that are listening to the words of Christ. Some believe and some don't believe. It seems innocuous. It seems small. But no, it's of great and grave consequences. 
So we must judge properly. Then there's the great divide. And then there's this imperative, this call from Christ through a promise and a warning, kind of all wrapped up in one, to seek after Christ before it is too late. So let's jump in the text here. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. It's, it's hilarious. It really is. Who is seeking to kill you? It's their way of saying, you're crazy. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a, man, a man's whole body well? Verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, if you're paying attention last week, you would have noticed we ran out of time before we ran out of text. This was supposed to be covered last week, but we ran out of time, so here it is. And like your mother always says, pay attention to the Passovers when you're reading John. Listen to your mother. Well, you know, in chapter 6, we have the Passover. Next Passover is coming up, end of chapter 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus, beginning in chapter 12. So what are we here? We're right in the middle at the Festival of Booths. Christ is coming in into the last six or so months of his earthly ministry. The groundwork has been prepared, and he's entering into this cauldron of opposition and persecution. He's on the cusp of suffering. So that changes your understanding of where he is when you come and approach these words. So Christ is at the Festival of Booths. And remember from last week, he said he's not going to go, but then he does go. He's just not going to go as his unbelieving brothers would have him to go. But here he is. And if you remember from Adam's sermon on chapter 5, Christ has healed this man who is lame for 38 years. And he heals him. Just on the northern side of the temple. And because of this, the religious elites are opposing Christ because of the work he has done. He had healed him on the Sabbath. Now, so there's supposed to be no work done on the Sabbath. So in their minds, to heal a man is to work. Therefore, what he has done is illegitimate. It should not have been done. But when we understand the law, we must see that there's, there's not exemptions from the law. It's not that so you should do this, but you're exempted from doing that. But you should understand the law that there are the uh, commands of activeness, active obedience always takes precedence over passive obedience. A positive command supersedes a negative one. So should we be exempt from loving our brothers just because it's the Sabbath? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So Christ says to them, let, let me show you your hypocrisy. You seek to condemn me. You seek to kill me. I know it. 
Let me show you your hypocrisy. You have Moses' law, but even you don't keep it. You're accusing me of doing that, but even you don't keep it. So what if there's a child that's born, and on the eighth day, that lands on the Sabbath? Are you going to work and circumcise it? Of course. And that's okay. Are you not guilty then, by your own admission, by your own standards, of breaking Moses' law? What you see here in verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I make a, whole man's, a man's whole body well? So if you're compelled to actively do what is right with this small child and take care of that, what about me with a whole body? And that that's okay. Shall I not be commended? Absolutely. But why do you seek to kill me? You're judging by appearances. You're not judging with right and sound judgment. I want you to see this. Any accusation made against Christ by them in the text or even by us in our own hearts, it is by nature hypocritical. He is the sum of all perfection and will be adored as such throughout all of eternity. But did he sin? Heavens, no. It didn't happen. What is it? Is his holiness not enough? Is his love too grand or is it too little? Is it patience? Does he not have enough patience? No, no. Maybe he has too much because he didn't call down fire upon them. What charge shall you bring against Christ other than the fact that he has declared himself to be God. And that's exactly what he's doing. Even our ability to judge right and wrong, is that not given to us by Christ? Any accusation that you make against Christ is hypocritical at its core. Why? Does our love, is it greater than Christ? Is our patience greater than Christ? Our holiness is it greater than Christ's? And none of you would openly admit it by giving him anything less, though, than all of your heart and all of your worship. You are declaring yourself to be greater than him. But there's something else that's going on here in your hearts. Because I, I saw it in my own heart uh, prior to being a believer. I was in college and I could, I was growing in the faith and I could see the holiness and the perfection and the beauty of Christ and the grandness of his love. I could see all of that, but I couldn't admit it because the moment I did, I knew those demands would then be placed upon me. So I lived an incredibly hypocritical life. Knowing Christ and all that he had done, I knew of it. Just like they in the text, they saw it. I knew of it, yet I rejected it because I didn't want those demands of who he was to fall upon me as well. 
And I'm hopeful, but I'm not naive amongst all of us here. That is some of you. You've heard the gospel and you know the holiness of God and you know the depravity of your own sin, of your addiction, your bitterness, your gluttony, your greed, your bitterness again and again. It will keep you from Christ and you know it. But in the midst of all that sin and brokenness, there is always hope in Christ. You don't have to be perfect, but you do have to submit everything. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says so beautifully, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. So the Christian life, it, it costs you nothing, but it takes everything that you have. It's all of the holiness of Christ. It's all of the righteousness of Christ. But it takes all of your life. And you must submit it to him. So if you see Christ in this way, yet you don't believe, you have to admit in your own hearts, as they should have in the text, when they're not judging properly, that the issue is not with Christ. It's not as though he is lacking in any way. That's not it. The issue is that you love your sin more than you love him. Judge Christ accurately and judge with right judgments. So we've seen this groundwork that Christ has laid. And we have to be aware of our own reasons. So now we're going to see this great divide between those who believe and those who who don't believe. In the same midst, they've heard the same words, they've seen the same signs, yet there are some who believe and there are some who reject him, who want to arrest him and kill him. So let's go back to the text here. Let's read uh, verses 25 through 27. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man who they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him? Can it be? Now, let's think about this. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now you have the common people kind of entering into this scene and into this discussion that's happening. And for them, it's just not, it's not adding up, is it? They want to kill this man, this Christ, but... Here he is speaking openly. The authorities, the religious elites, they want to kill him. But here he is. He's in the temple and he's speaking. As if a, an invisible hand, would you believe it or not, is holding them back while Christ is sharing the truth of God in the midst of the temple. Can it be, they say, that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Have the rulers, maybe they've changed their mind. After all, they've seen and that's why they're letting him go on and on and teaching like this. And you could see the wheels beginning to turn in their head. But then, then they go in verse 27 and they say, but, that, that can't be. That doesn't make sense. Because when the Messiah comes, we, know, we don't know where he's going to be from. But we, this is Christ. We know where he's from. We know the sordid story. Why would they think that? That the Messiah, that they wouldn't know where he was supposed to come from. Look at Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. 
Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Where is he going to come from? Doesn't matter. We don't know. He's just suddenly, he's going to come into his temple. And then this great chapter in Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel's writing about the Son of Man, 7.13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So where is he going to come from? Well, he's going to be presented to the people. Where is he going to come from? He's going to suddenly appear in the temple. But here is this Christ. Maybe he thinks like he is, but we know where he's, we know where he's from. We saw him growing up. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense at all. Unless. Unless. He's both. What does Christ say here? Go to verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. You know me. And you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he has sent me. What's the little catch that brings it all together for him? That he's both. Is he sent by the Father and he will suddenly appear in the temple? Absolutely. Is he delivered to us by God the Father to redeem his people? Absolutely. But do we know of his birth? That he was raised by Mary and Joseph and had brothers? Absolutely. He's fully man, fully God, sent by God the Father to redeem his people, born of a virgin, that he might be sinless, that he might be like us in every aspect. Yet without sin. For some, this is uh, some part of this is, is easy to digest. When he says, "You know me, and you know where I've come from," but there's other parts that make it impossible for them to just stand idly by and not react. What does he add on? If he would have just left it there, it would have been fine. And then they would have gone, yeah, see, he is a good teacher. He is. But no, he, he kind of catches and he adds on and he makes it worse and worse for him. He says, he who sent me is true and you do not know him. For I, I come from him. I come from him. The other prophets, yeah, they were sent by God. None of the prophets of the old said they came from God, as though their origin is that of the eternal God the Father is the same? That he's eternally God from eternity past? Absolutely, and that's what he's claiming right here. Not that he was just sent from God, but that he is God. Verse 30. 
So they, how do they respond here? So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You see that again and again and again in John. Hour has not come. The people can't get to him until you get to the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. And he says, Father, now the hour has come. And right away, the crucifixion begins to happen. But not yet. You have another six months. Remember your Passovers, as your mother says when you're reading John. Verse 31. Yet many of the people believed him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And here, my friends, is the great, the great divide. Within our culture, there is a numerous ways to divide people. Socially, economically, race, politically. But how does the Bible divide people? How does, it, how does the Bible divide up those who are responding to Christ? Those who are seeking to arrest him and those who believe. Those who do not believe and hate Christ and those who believe him, they see his signs, they hear his words, and they turn to him because they know he has the words of life. And though it might be difficult, they could never turn away. Those are the two types of people. That's it. Remember that. This week when you go out into the world and the world's going to try to conform you to see people this way or that way, either by what they drive and where they dress or what scrubs they have on, oh, you know exactly where they fit up in the pecking order. Right? No, no. There's just two groups of people. Those who believe and those who do not. And that's it. Those who hate God and those who love Him. Those who don't believe, what are they? Naturally, they're compelled to arrest Him. There's no neutrality whatsoever. This inclusivity stuff is, is hogwash. There's no inclusivity, there can't be. If you have a man who's claiming to be Lord and claiming to be God and you don't believe him, then you hate him. You must. And maybe you don't even see it in your own life, but that's the only reaction you can have if you don't believe. There's no neutrality whatsoever. How would, how would it be possible to be neutral against someone who's claiming to be Lord, claiming to be King and God over all, demanding that you worship Him, demanding that you surrender everything to Him? You see that in the King and you want to kill Him. See that in Christ, same reaction if you don't believe. You want to kill Him. There's no neutrality. There's no inclusivity. Either you believe or you don't. If you don't love him, you hate him. And you would be the ones who would want to lay your hands upon him, as it says in the text. And you would be the one who would want to arrest him as well. But even in those same chambers, amongst those who did not believe were those who did believe. Now, if you're going through the Rockies, through on I-80, driving through 
Wyoming, I think it's near Rawlings, uh, within a couple miles or so. This is this great continental divide. And if rain lands here, it goes to the Pacific. And if rain lands here, it goes to the Gulf. It seems small and insignificant, like it doesn't matter whatsoever. And that is belief and unbelief. For those who were there at that moment, maybe they didn't think it was a big deal in how they would respond to Christ. But it makes the biggest difference ever. These two, so close, same storm, same county, same area, made it hit the same tree, might have even hit the same rock. But they are divided and they shall never be together again. And as it goes on and on and on, they get further and further and further apart. This is the same difference we have between belief and unbelief. You might think it's not a big deal. You might think that you could just wait a little bit. But no, you can't. You can't wait at all. It's not insignificant. The results could not drive you to be further apart. But there are those who believe in the midst of them who did not believe. Perhaps it was you when you heard the gospel for the first time. Surrounded by people who do not and did not believe. But for some reason, God worked in your heart. What is it as though you were more righteous than the others? No. But for some reason, God has set his affection on you, if you believe, from eternity past. And he has worked it in your heart, and you believe. That is a sign of God's great love for you, is it not? That his love for you shall never end because his love for you never began? It's always been there? And he demonstrates that for you? That in the midst of unbelief, you hear the same gospel, you've seen the same signs, you've read, you've read the same gospel of John, and for some reason God works in your heart, even though you don't believe it. What a great act of God's love towards you. Yet there are many, as the text says, there are many of the people who believed him. And when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In the Greek, it's anticipating this like negative response. Like, of course not. He's, he's, he's given us enough. And keep in mind, there's more to come. This is before Lazarus. This is before his humble death and obedience. Walking out in faith. This is before the resurrection and before the ascension. Even then they had seen enough. To know that this is the Christ. That this is the Messiah. You see what John is doing here in the gospel. He's given you these moments of reflection. He'll give you a sign and then show you how the people responded. Either in belief or in unbelief. Wedding in Cana. Walking on the water as Adam preached on. Feeding of the 5,000. Again and again you are confronted with the truth of Christ and who he is. And John's eliciting this out of you so that you may know. Do I believe or unbelieve? Which one am I? What soil am I? 
Am I the path? Am I the thorns? Am I the good soil? Am I the rocky ground? Which one am I? So then when you come to the ultimate sign, his death and resurrection, now you're really challenged. Which one is it going to be? Shall I believe or shall I not? So let's finish this out here. Let's go back to the text in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. You have a demon. What do you mean we want to kill you? Well, yeah, you don't even get to the end of the story. And here they are. He knows their hearts better than they know them. He knows the depravity of their sin more than they realize. Be warned. The Pharisee heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while longer than I'm going to him who sent me. Verse 34, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, what does this man intend to go? Where? That we will not find him. Does he intend to go amongst the dispersion? And among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek after me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. What is Christ's great promise and warning to them? There will come a time when you will seek after me and you won't find me. For where I'm going, you cannot Come. And again, they, they could not understand and they could not perceive what he was talking about. He told them that I'm coming from the Father and that I'm going back to God the Father, but you can't come. And again, with their earthly eyes, all they could do, they can't see God, they can't see up above with their earthly eyes, all they can do is see further out on the horizon. So they go, oh, he must be traveling further away. He must be going to the Greeks. They see further down on the horizon. My friends, seek after Christ while he might be found. Seek after Christ while he might be found. In my youth, I ran after my father as he drove away, and it was too late. In Hebrews, we're told that Cain sought repentance with tears. And it was too late. How many rejected the teachings of Noah and his proclamation of God's truth and began pounding on the ark to be saved, to be led in? But it was too late because God had shut the door. There will come a point in time when it will be too late for you. But if you're hearing these words, rejoice that that time has not yet come. It is not yet too late to seek after Christ and to find him. Seek him now. Seek after Christ now while he might be found. So what do we do with this? I'll wrap it up here quickly. What do we do? Number one, 
don't be a hypocrite. Just, just don't be a hypocrite. Christ cannot only stand the test of perfection, but he makes the test of perfection. But we, in our hypocrisy, place standards upon him that we ourselves cannot even keep. He is the true north. He is the, the Polaris star that we seek after. So if we're not seeing him for who he is, then it's our perception that is wrong. If our judgments about him do not bring us to worship him and to realize that he is God, that he was sent by God the Father, that he is the second person of the Trinity, then our perception is way off. And the problem isn't him. The problem is us. Number one, don't be a hypocrite. Number two, very briefly, just marvel at Christ. This week, marvel at him. You saw that earlier in this chapter, they were marveling at his teaching when he was in the temple. Here he said, I did one work and you marveled at it. In verse 21. Both his teaching and his signs, who he is and what he does. Just take time this week to push everything else aside and marvel. Sit at the feet of the greatest teacher who's ever lived. In his word, through the scripture, through prayer, and marvel at Christ. Don't be a hypocrite. Marvel at Christ. And then obviously, we're going to hammer it again. Seek after Christ while he might be found. Is he not worth finding? Right? So what's holding you back? If you don't believe, we'll take it to him. And ask him to open up your eyes. If it's your sin that's holding you back, well then go to him and ask him to show you the riches that he has for you. Even you fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, Shall this call to seek after Christ be all the much more for us? That our hearts would not grow cold after God's hot grace has saved us. How quickly we just turn it off and think we can kind of coast in and be just fine. No, actively day after day after day. And your hearts even right now cry out to him. Either that you might be saved or that you might be sanctified by his grace. To show you the continual layers of atoned for sin that are in your heart. And that you may seek after him and forsake everything that he might be found. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, work on us a heart to seek you in all circumstances. If we find anything else and it is not you, our lives are ruined. Our lives are worthless if we seek anything but you and your son. God, could your spirit work in us to seek after the true treasure, the only thing that is worth finding, this pearl of great price, God, that we would forsake everything to come after and seek after your Son. Work that in our hearts. We pray this in his holy 
wonderful, beautiful, gracious name. Amen. Amen.